So when I first started preaching, it's been about 20 years ago at least. I don't look that old, but it's been 20 years. When I first started speaking, and I just want to kind of talk, agree with what Michael said about just the faithfulness of getting together as a church family, even when there's not a lot of us to get, not a, not a lot of us here. When I first started speaking, it was whenever the the man was out of town, like the guy that was the normal preacher. And so those Sundays, people would choose not to come. Like it would be probably about a third less people. And I used to get disappointed in that, and I, I didn't know how to take that, and I, I didn't take it personally. Eventually, I, I got over that. But uh, the positive of just coming together and keeping this rhythm of life, the rhythm of being together as, 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 as a body of people, as a body of Christ, and Hopefully you're not here just because I'm here. Hopefully you're not here just because Michael's here. Hopefully you're not here just because somebody's going to speak. Hopefully you're here because this is your church family. This is, this is an important thing. We have too many, in our culture, we have too many idols that we worship, and those idols are people. And we worship them because they speak well, or they say what we like to hear, or they do things that we like for them to do, and so we end up worshiping them as people. And churches kind of grow hinged on that sometimes. And so I, I hope that's not where we're at and what's going on. And so I'm, I'm glad that we're here, and I'm glad we're spending our time together, even when there's a significantly less amount of us here than there normally is. But this, fl- this rhythm of being together as family is an important thing. I was going to uh, read our passage this morning from John chapter 19. If you want to follow along, if you just want to listen to him, uh, that'll be fine. Near the, gro- near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there the, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was was there. So they soaked a sponge in it and they put this sponge on a stalk and (coughs) stalk of the hyssop plant. And lifted it to Jesus, Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It's finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did, because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The, bo- Wait. the soldiers therefore came broke and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and and 
He testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the side they have pierced. So, uh, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? That may sound like a, a rhetorical question. It may sound like a, a question that really doesn't make any sense because our kind of our knee-jerk reaction is, well, Jesus died on the cross so I can go to heaven. Okay, but sure there's more to it than Jesus died so we could get a ticket to heaven. Right? See, when we talk about the death of Jesus, there's a lot of heavy theological ideas and heavy theological words that are tied up in the reasoning behind why He died on the cross. The idea of sanctification. Now, sanctification is a process by which something that is ordinary or common is taken and made useful or set apart and made useful for the purposes of God. So to take something and make it to where God can use it. And so Jesus, through His death on the cross took us and made us useful. I know that's a hard thing for us to hear, right? He took us and He made us useful. He made us worthy, if you will, in God's sight. So there's an idea of sanctification that goes in the midst of all this. But then there's the idea of justification. The idea of justification is that we had to be made right, or we have to be made right in the sight of God. So essentially we're taken from the minus column where we're not right in the sight of God, and we're put in the plus column in a very basic sense we are right in the sight of God. And so we are justified. So sanctification where we're set apart, justification where we're made right in the sight of God, but then there's also this idea of atonement. Now, atonement is one that, while it sounds good, it, it, there's some weight and some violence to the word of atonement. Because when we think about atonement, atonement takes place because in our minds because we're sinners, right? God is angry about sin, and God is angry at sin, and He can't be where sin is. And so, so by the life and the death and the burial of, of, of Jesus and His resurrection, Jesus quenched that anger, if you will. And so God's anger was subsided because of Jesus' death. And so Jesus died to praise, pay the price that we couldn't pay ourselves. He overcame death for us. There's also the idea that there's, and it talks about in the passage we this morning, about there's multitudes of prophecies in the Old Testament talk about Jesus and his, his, the life He would live, or the Messiah, because He didn't name but the Messiah, and the, the life the Messiah would live, what the Messiah would have to do for us, and what the Messiah would have to do in our lives. And so there's a sense in which Jesus had to die to fulfill prophecy. Now that's just four ideas, right? There, there's others that we could talk about. There's other things that we could note about why Jesus had to, or why Jesus died on the cross. And so we could take this reality of the life and death of Jesus, and we could blow it up, and we could take all the different spheres of it, and we could say, okay, this part and that part, and we could try to uh, get meaning to all the different parts of it. But maybe a better practice, especially for us this morning, is to take it in, in context of, okay, last week we talked about opting in, and we talked about why we should opt into service. And we take the, the life of Jesus as a whole, and we take that and we combine it in such a way that we consider, we, we consider His life and we consider His death as a thing, as a, as a whole unit that not just individual terms, but that can give us some type of meaning in this life. 
there's got to be more than just the idea that Jesus came to forgive these pesky sins that we have. Sins of anger, sins of jealousy, sins of pride. I think the greater reality of the life and the death of Jesus is that He, living and dying, He provided us a way to get away from this rebellious life that we live. This rebellious life that we live that prohibits us, in a very real way, prohibits us from living into or being a part of the life that God has created us to or created us for. Do you hear hear the difference? In one way, it's a very passive thing where we're just accepting the the sacrifice and it's cleansing us and we're made whiter than snow and and we can be welcomed into heaven. And on the other side, the sense in which we are called to reorder our lives, order our lives is perhaps a better way to look at it, so that we can be who God has created us to be. One is passive and one is... Can't something just be easy, right? Why is there always stuff that's required of me? Especially we talk about church, because church becomes something that's very almost, and one of the reasons why it's so important for us to keep this, this rhythm of life of coming together is because we, we, may, we want to make sure that church is not just about what we're asking, but church is about being together and living life together. You argue, well, I give on Sunday or I tithe on Sunday. Isn't that enough? I show up on Sunday mornings and I, and I worship and I shake hands and I, I interact. Isn't that enough? I, I get the impulse and I get the desire to be comfortable. As Americans, listen to me now, as Americans, we are programmed to be comfortable. We can stand back and we can look at our lives and see all the stress and the turmoil and difficulty and we want something to be easy and we feel like this should be easy. This would be the one thing where we can almost be spectators and just come in and enjoy and then go out and do what we need to do in the world. I mean, my parenting is difficult. Marriage is difficult. Jobs are difficult. Driving to work is difficult. Friendships are All this stuff is difficult. Can't something just be, can't something just be easy? But what if we're looking at it wrong? Months ago, I, I, if you remember one of my sermons, I think it was back in October, I talked about a book I was reading called The Art of Possibility. And the idea in the, in the book is, is about changing the way we look at things so that we can see different outcomes. Changing the way we see things so we can envision new possibilities. And an unfortunate theology, an unfortunate theology is where we pit this way of the cross, this way of Jesus, this life of Jesus against our own because again, as Americans, we are very much so programmed, pre-programmed to be comfortable. It's a lot about affluence, right? We're born into comfort. It's detrimental to our Christian life. We're lulled into this sleep, this, this, this slumber of, of being comfortable and always wanting to be comfortable. You could, you could wake up in Nashville this morning and you could have dinner in Hawaii. It's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? If you have a runny nose, you can go to the drugstore. I know that's not a thing anymore. You could go to a, you go CVS, you could go to Kroger, you go wherever you shop, and you could pick up a medicine that will make your nose stop running. If you have a headache, you can get something to make your headache stop hurting. You get a cut on the finger, you can get a Band-Aid and some ointment to put on that, and it'll go away. 
I did some research yesterday while I had some time. And you know there are beds out there that you can buy? You can buy a mattress that is $10,000. A mattress, right? For you to sleep on. Because comfort. There's a bed, and I did another piece of research I delved into. There's a bed that you can buy that is for sale for $6.3 million. It's all about making us comfortable. I got my car, my, my expedition. I love my expedition. You know the best things about that is? It has heated and cooled seats. Every car I own from here on out is going to have to have cooled seats. I'm sorry. It's my comfort, right? It's just a few things that we see that we have that are just about comfort. And so we become, I don't like this word, but we become entitled. Feel like we should be comfortable. That's the way life should be. And so that anytime something comes that starts to make us uncomfortable, what's the first thing we try and do? And it's our, our bodies are built this way too. The first thing we try and do when we start getting uncomfortable is we try we start adjusting that environment until everything gets back into that, what is that word? The, the homeostasis, where everything gets back to a place where it's nice and it's everything's calm and everything feels good as quickly as possible. What's the cost that we're paying? What is the cost that we're paying to be comfortable? Have you ever seen the movie Wall-E? I really like the movie Wall-E. I think it's a Pixar. It's a movie about this little robot who is stuck on Earth, and then all of a sudden this other robot shows up, and it's really a little story. But he they ended up on this. Everybody on Earth ends up on this spaceship out in space, and they're there for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And the problem is that they've corrupted Earth to the point where nothing will grow, and they can't live on Earth anymore, and everything's bad, and so they've had to go live on a spaceship. And so on this spaceship, they have these chairs, these hover chairs that they go everywhere in. And there's a screen that's about this far from their face that shows them everything they need. When it's time to go to bed, the lights go out, and they, their chairs go back to their rooms, and they get in bed. When it's time to eat is brought to them. And they don't know anything past it. They don't know each other. And they become these beings that are, that are just existing. And in the movie, there's this point where there's this chance for them to go back to earth. And all of a sudden, the reality of them having to walk becomes difficult. Not, not just a problem, but it's like, can they walk? They haven't walked for thousands of years. Things start breaking down on the ship when their food doesn't get bought at the right time or whenever their chairs stop moving or whatever there's not what they need. All of a sudden, society starts to break down because they become so comfortable just living in ease that they don't know how to live comfortably. That's overly fantasized imagery. It's a cartoon. I get that. But to what extent do we seek to maintain our comfort? In reality, right? There's very little in the, the biblical story about God being overly concerned with whether or not you and I are comfortable. Does that make God mean and uncaring? It doesn't, but it does. In our mentality, it does. Like, God doesn't care about my comfort? Are you kidding me? I'm out of here. I don't want to be part of this religion. God's mean and uncaring. We look back at the images of Wall-E and think, oh my goodness, is too much comfort detrimental? 
Let's look at it a different way. There's a, there's a show that the boys and, and uh, like to watch the family called American Ninja Warrior. Anybody familiar with American Ninja Warrior? It's, it's a, watching these, these people do this is amazing. That's all I can say, right? You've got these people that do these amazing things. They jump over stuff and they do it. I sound like an old person, but they do these amazing things, right? I'm an old person. I know that. I'm not, I'm not throwing shade at old people. I am old. They do these amazing things. But you know what? Every year they, they have all these tryouts and they go to the end. And, and every year these guys get up to the starting line and they look down this gauntlet of things they're going to have to do. And they haven't seen it before they step up on the stage. And they look down through there and you know what they do? They don't go, oh, that looks too hard. I'm not doing that. You want me to do what? I'm, I'm out. I'm going to go sit up on the sideline and watch out. They look at it and they say, okay, how can I overcome this? How can I get past this to get to the end, to ring the buzzer so I can go to the next round? can I get there from here? They don't ever turn around and run because they have, tra- they have trained, they have practiced, and they are eager for the challenge. You know what? Everybody falls. Everybody falls. At the end, there's usually one person that gets close to what they call Mount Midoriyama where they have to climb this 60-foot rope, something like that, in under 30 seconds and ring a bell at the top to get a million dollars. Everybody falls. Everybody fails. I think in the seasons we've been watching, one person's done the whole thing. But you know what they do when they get out of the water or wherever they fall out? They say, I can't wait for next year. I can't wait to go do it again. You like to climb mountains. Now, I don't get that as a, as a hobby, but some people like to climb mountains. And when they approach mountains, you know what they do? They look at it and they say, okay, I'm going to put my hand here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. They don't look at the challenge and step back and say, that's, that's too hard. I'm not even going near that. Life may not be some super hard mathematical puzzle that needs to be solved, but it is an amazing journey that is that's going to have some really difficult challenges to overcome. I think if we look at the life and death of Jesus in the right light, we see it in a light that it's not just about Jesus clearing the way and punching our ticket so that we can get to heaven, but it's about Him showing us a way to live here and now. Showing us a path that is about self-sacrifice. And, not a, and when we say that, everybody's like, oh, self-sacrifice, that sounds so hard. Can I just give some more money? It's not a torturous path that we get on because we have to, because we want to go to heaven one day. It's a path that's littered with opportunities to serve like Jesus served. To live into the calling that God has created us for. And so when Jesus said on the cross, when He said, it is finished, it was not the end of the journey. It didn't stop the process. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was the beginning of an eternal partnership. It's an invitation to us to join God in creating His image and to do what He has called us to do where He has called us to be. Talked a little bit last week about finding that sweet spot of service where whenever we have to make sacrifices to be in that sweet spot of service, it doesn't really matter. Afterwards, Laura Denning, I was back here cleaning, she wanted to talk to me, so I came out and talked to her, and she wanted to talk about where she found her sweet spot of service. Some of y'all here from HCC way back in the day, and they used to do a big camp every summer out at Valley View. And Laura used to go every year. She had her little 
gator that she'd drive around on, and she would just, she, and she said, that was where I felt the most alive. That's where I felt like I was doing the most good for God. I was in that place, in that moment with those people. And it's not a cliche, it's not pie in the sky to say that if we find our sweet spot where God has created us to be, that it won't feel like sacrifice, that it won't feel like this begrudging service, that it'll be where we, we will feel like we are where we, are, we need to be. Shane Claiborne in his book, um, I can't remember the name of it, I should have looked it up. Shane Claiborne, he wrote about going and visiting with Mother Teresa in India. And Mother Teresa, and I may have talked about this before, it's just such an, it's an amazing thing. She had, her feet were all balled up. And her feet were like that because whenever people would bring shoes to the orphanage, she would let everybody else get whatever they needed and she would take whatever was left, regardless of size, regardless of fit, and that's what she would wear. If you talk to Mother Teresa, she would not complain about the process. She would not complain about what she's doing. She was living in the moment of where she was supposed to be. She was living into what God had created her to be. Several years ago, I read about this couple who heard about a colony of lepers who had nobody to minister to them because they were outcasts. And so they had, the families had grown, their families had become adults, and they were grandchildren. They decided, you know, we're going to go live out our life ministering to these to this colony of lepers, and so there's this imagery that's given as they kind of go to the edge of this, this community of lepers, and their family's there, and they're saying goodbye to their family. And it's this bittersweet moment, but it's this reality that they have found what God has created them for. And they said goodbye to their family, and they went and they joined this colony and, and ministered there. Eventually, like them got leprosy and passed too. But they had lived into what God had created them for. They'd found their sweet spot. Now, I know what you're thinking, right? What's God going to ask me to do? God going to ask me to sell everything and move to somewhere that I don't want to be? Is God going to make me go serve this community? Is God going to make me do this? God's not going to make you do anything. Let's be clear about that. God's not going to make you do anything. God's going to equip some people to do immense things, to do some crazy big things. He's equipped all of us to do something. The task of life, the goal of life, is we read about Jesus, and we read about His life, and read about His death, and understanding that His life and His death was about service to God, self-sacrifice to God, is seeking out where God sees us, where God has created us for, and then finding that spot and living into it, and then finding a fulfillment that we never fully understood or never fully knew that we would have. Such an amazing opportunity. Do you know how many people are out there in the world struggling to figure out what their meaning in life is? I can't help you find out your meaning in life. Let me take that back. God has created you with a meaning in life, and we can pray and we can work together and move you in that direction, but you have to be willing to move there. If you're unhappy, if there's something in your life that's amiss, maybe that's because you're not living into what God has created you for. If you're miserable, maybe that's because you're not, maybe you're fighting against what God is creating in you. Maybe you're fighting against where God is leading you. And we have this amazing opportunity to live with eternity in mind. Not with our eyes so fixed on heaven that we are no good this side of the cross, but with our minds set on working with God in this life as He works to redeem His creation. That's what God's calling us to. That is who God is calling us to be. 
So I encourage you. Be receptive when the Spirit prompts you. Be receptive whenever you're in a situation all of a sudden you feel like, is this where I need to be? And live into that. I know God's not going to ask all of us to do some great and, and amazing thing or what we might think is some crazy thing, but God is asking all of us to be who He created us to be. God is asking all of us to live in to the amazing opportunities that God has created for us. This life is not about surviving. This life is about serving. This life is about being who God has created us to be. Like Jesus. God, for today, I am thankful for this opportunity to be with your family. For those that aren't here, I pray a special blessing on them, that you watch over them as they travel or whatever's happening today in their lives. Just open up opportunities, not just for them, but open up opportunities for us to live into what you have called us to be and who you have called us to be. Give us the spark. Give us the passion. Give us the opportunity to be who you have created us to be and help us to live into and walk into and to be who you have created us to be. Thank you for Jesus and thank you for not just his death, but for the life that he lived that led up to that death that was all about self-sacrifice and all about serving you and all about being you in this world and help us to join you as you walk that path and help us to join you as you seek to redeem the creation that you so lovingly create and that has rejected you. Help us to be part of the redemption process and not the rejection process. Humble us, Father. Remove what you need to remove. Help us to be for you and only for you. In Jesus' name, amen.